And I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. When I don't know where to go, I go to the book of Psalms, both in my soul level. You know, I'm, I'm feeling spiritually dry and uh, aimless. And so more than any place else, I will turn in my own devotion to the book of Psalms. And when I don't know what to preach, I also preach the book of Psalms because it's my, it's my jam. Uh, and properly, it is jams that we're looking at. The book of Psalms is a book of music. It's a book uh, that is the, uh, the, the place of the praise of God's people for uh, nearly all of redemptive history. Some of the Psalms uh, particularly are ancient, as old as Moses, and obviously many are from the days of David, but it is the center of Christian Jewish and uh, Christian and Jewish devotion. It is the catalog of praise and prayers for God's people. Uh, the authors include Moses and David and Solomon and the sons of Korah and a guy named Asaph and another guy named He-Man. I think it's He-Man, but I like to call him He-Man. So uh, there, there's all these different authors, five different books in its arrangement. Uh, the, it is the most quoted book, Old Testament book, in the New Testament, 360-some quotations in the New Testament. From the Old Testament, uh, about 115 of those are quotations or allusions from the Psalms. Uh, it has a variety of stuff in there too, right? You've, you've opened the Psalms and you've seen songs that are sorrowful and songs that are to the drumbeat of a warrior that have the clashing of swords and uh, psalms that have a, the quiet scene of a of a, a forest and a, a stream. Every single one of these songs can be either a meditation or a confluence of love and hate, fear and joy, doubt and despair. I love the psalms, and as I was thinking that we have about two weeks until we're back in in more full session here in Crossroads, what did I want to do? And, and I thought, I, I don't think I have ever preached Psalm number one, uh, a psalm that everybody knows, a psalm that everybody's read. And as I was talking about how I'd never preached Psalm one, I Googled it up and found out I had actually preached Psalm one. I just didn't remember. In 2009 to high school kids, I preached Psalm one. They don't remember. I don't remember. I listened to about five minutes of it and turned it off and said, I really never have preached Psalm one. So... <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to, to open Psalm 1, and then my plan is next week to look at Psalm 2, uh, the opening of the, of the book of Psalms, and then we'll jump into a new series here for the fall. But uh, Psalm 1 really is reflective of the, the whole of the Psalms, all the, the variety of the Psalms, the themes of the Psalms are there, the theology of the Psalms, and the Psalms really are theological. They tell you so much about who God is. And therefore, they tell you about who you are since you're made by God in his likeness and image. And they remind us of what we just did like two seconds ago when we were singing. They remind us that, that singing and thinking go together. That singing and thoughtful devotion is not just a mere expression of emotion or affection from our hearts, but it's logical, thoughtful, doctrinal. And those things cannot be separate us. They're supposed to make us not only have stirred hearts of praise towards God, but also have deep thoughts towards God. They make us think and they make us 
uh, meditate. The depth of wisdom in these psalms really do have the ability to change your life. And Psalm 1 is, is certainly typical of that. Psalm 1 is the perfect entrance point to the book of songs, to this book of praise and worship that has inhabited God's people. And, you know, with, with, with Psalm 1, I don't have what I like to call the preacher's advantage, like the, the home court. You know, if I was to open up to Leviticus 12, you probably haven't been having your devos in Leviticus 12. But Psalm 1, everybody knows Psalm 1. So its familiarity is dangerous because you know it because you've, you've read it so many times. Maybe you, you know, thought, I'm going to read the Psalms, and you made it through Psalm 1, and then you know, did something else. But everybody's read Psalm 1. Maybe it's, it's next to just like Psalm 23, the, the shepherd's song, in terms of fame and, and familiarity. But there's, there's, there's a message to Psalm 1 that is so crucial and so important, and so life-changing, and so now or never, that I thought it was the the ideal place for us to think together, especially those of you who are new with us, who are starting out in a new place in your life, and who are thinking about your future as this gaping chasm of fear, or or just an exciting about the next couple years. It depends on your personality. So Whichever way you're thinking about the future, Psalm 1 really seeks to direct your steps, and it counters so many popular myths and worldviews that people hang on to today in our society with a bold, clear, resolute claim that there are only two ways to live. And so Psalm 1 is our text today. Let's dive into it. It starts, I'll read it all together, and then we'll work through it in a real simple way. Uh, Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is the very word of the living God. Psalm 1 has a message that is almost unheard of in our culture. When I first moved to California, we lived in an apartment in North Hollywood, and up the street from our apartment was a bookstore. The name of the bookstore in scenic NoHo was Many Paths 
bookstore. Mini paths. Mini paths. It was like a new agey kind of, you know, hippie, crystal, vibing kind of place. And it didn't have books that I was interested in, but I remember sticking my nose in there and going, yep, not, not my kind of bookstore. And a sign had something like, you know, all, all peoples, all things, all, all, all are, this is the, the store for all, all, all. They didn't have any Christian books in there, but all besides that. Uh, and the, the idea behind mini paths is, is what you think of when you think of our plural, multicultural, everybody does their own thing kind of society. It was a place that affirmed that whatever you did, uh, you were included, you were part of it. And that's the message of our culture today, though there is so much solidarity on cultural issues that our Christians stand in opposition to, uh, the majority of, of unbelievers hold to a philosophy that's very different than Psalm 1. They would say that there is an uncountable number of ways that you could live, uh, that everybody's a snowflake, everybody's unique, everybody's different, everybody's you know, on their own journey and on their own path. And, and you understand that. And there's something about that that's true. You are a, a lovely snowflake and you are different than uh, your siblings and then your neighbors and then everybody else in, in the juvenile detention facility you went to high school with or whatever. So you understand that there's, there's differences with everybody and everybody goes a different route and makes different choices and has different interests and desires and a different career. And so we could, we, I think we're prone to think about humanity as, as this, this, this massive group of differences and massive group of, of preferences and skills and abilities and, and all these different kinds of people. And then you have the message of Psalm 1, a message that this says that there aren't thousands and thousands of ways to live, but there's only two ways to live. That there's not an unlimited number of outcomes when you reach the end of your life, but there's only two outcomes. There's only two destinies. There's only two possibilities. There's only two paths to walk. When it comes to God's perspective of your life, there isn't a thousand options before you, no matter how many times you'll switch your major in the next few years. There's only two paths. And Psalm 1 describes it in such clarifying and stark and black and white kind of terms. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And they have different operating instructions, different, different information, different worldviews. And they have a different outworking of those two ways that, that looks very different. And then eventually they have a different, a different destiny. And so Psalm 1's familiar message is such an important message for us today to remind us that there's really only two ways to live, a way of the righteous, a way that follows the counsel of God, that follows after His view of things and world and life, and a way of following after our own sinful desires. And one way will end in life and another way ends in destruction. But Psalm 1, though it's stark and simple, has so much to teach us as we dive into the message. 
And so I'd like to look at it in three parts, if that's okay with you as a note taker. Uh, Three parts of Psalm 1, just three words that kind of drive us through this passage. And we'll start with the engine. Let's Let's talk about the engine. And we'll look at this through the believer's life. So this is the righteous life. This is the believer's life. There's some contrast to the wicked here. But I'd like to think about if you are going to be following God, if that's the path that you're going to take in your life, because there's only two paths to take. You either follow God or you keep going the way of the sinner. What, what will your life look like as one who follows God? What is a Christian's uh, course of life? And, and it starts with what I'm going to call the engine. Uh, this is the internal motivation. This is the drive of this person. And you see it in verses 1 and 2 the engine of the righteous. Look at what it says, verse 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed, ashray in Hebrew. Uh, It can mean different things in different contexts. It could be translated uh, blessed, like you have been blessed, like Yahweh's blessed you, like, you know, you you achieved something, you, you got something, uh, you won an award, and, and somebody says to you, man, you're really blessed. Or you ask a girl out, and she says yes, and your buddy says, oh, man, you're blessed. So we, we think of that word blessed, hashtag blessed, as, as this is someone who's underneath the, the blessing of God. They've been blessed by God, and that's one of the ways the word is used in the Bible Another way in Psalm 137 is, is the blessed man or the blessed woman is the one who does what is right and righteous. And that makes sense here as well. But there's another way that this word is used in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 10, 8, it means a person has happiness in their place in life. That's how it's used in 1 Kings. And I think that's what the psalmist was doing with it here. I think the blessing isn't about the, the stuff that you have. Uh, it isn't about you know, the, the circumstances necessarily. And it's not just that you receive the blessing of God, though all that is, is, is part of it. I think this really is a happiness in one's position, in one's lot, in one's place. It's describing a person who does not live a certain way and then describes them with a metaphor of a tree that looks a certain way. And so the life of this person is on display. This is a blessed man. I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he preached that great sermon on the mount in the book of Matthew when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, they'll receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers. All those claims of blessedness speak of happiness, of contentment, of recognizing that you are where God has you, that you are in the center of God's plan for your life. That's the opening word of this song. It's a word of blessedness, of prosperity, of happiness, not only of God's kindness shining in your life, but an awareness that you are where you belong. You know, that's a great starting point for us because people really do long to have meaning in their life, purpose in their life. 
It's true of, of non-Christians, of, of really anybody. They, they don't want to have an aimless life. People want to achieve something. They want to have something to show in the outcome of their life. People, generally speaking, desire to be happy. The philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said, every human desires his own happiness. It's the reason that you put on clothes in the morning and brush your teeth instead of waking up and punching yourself in the face and rolling around in the dirt. Uh, You don't want to be unhappy. You want to be happy. Uh, You live to plea, to find pleasure, to find joy, to find satisfaction and meaning and purpose. And in this opening verse, we see that the interior of the righteous person, the interior of the person that follows God, the engine that drives them has something to do with the joyful condition of their life. And then it immediately moves to show you what doesn't direct them. The thing that doesn't direct a righteous person. And that's interesting because you'd think first of the positive things, but that's not how it looks in the psalmist's poem. As he writes this music down, he sees the righteous person, the person that follows God, the person that worships God, to be a person defined and distinct because of what they do not do. And that may sound negative to you, but that's the nature of being and belonging to God. You see, all of us are part of this mass of humanity, aren't we? We're all people. We're all humans of different shapes and sizes and abilities and thoughts. But all of us in solidarity, in perfect solidarity, are a human mess. All of us are sinners. We're born into this world that's broken and flawed, and we're broken and flawed. And so when God pulls people out of the regular flow of life where everyone is in rebellion against God, all of us by nature and by choice are sinful. We rebel against God. We do things that dishonor God. We don't follow God and worship God as we ought to. Our default setting, as it were, in this life is one of sinful tendencies and following after sinful desires. A righteous person is unusual in that massive storm and crowd of godlessness. And so it makes sense that they would be set out by what they do not do, especially not just in terms of their activity, but in terms of their motivation. That's why we're talking about the engine of the blessed person, the internal desire, the motivation, and that's what drives them. So look at what they do not do, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. A lot of commentators in this verse see progression there, walking, standing, and sitting. But I don't think that's the main emphasis of what's happening here. I think these are the distinctive marks of a Christian, of a godly person, of a God-fearer. And though it's stated in the negative, it shows you what their internal motivation is all about. Look at the first one, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So if we look under the hood of the unbeliever, 
what do we see? Well, the first thing the psalmist notes is their walk. Their walk. That's just a word throughout the Old and New Testament that means lifestyle, right? I mean, how you walk defines your direction. It defines your life. It's a metaphor for the path that you're on. And so he uses this word walk to speak of the lifestyle of a Christian. Your walk is what makes you distinctive. It shows where you're going. I've had many people tell me that they saw me from a distance and knew it was me because I've, I've heard this a number of times throughout the course of my life. I thought that was you. I knew it was you when I saw you walk. Apparently, I have some clumpy, lumpy walk that I do. And people notice it from a crowd in the distance. They're like, oh, there's a, there's a large, bald uh, man over there. I, that looks like Duncan. Oh, yeah, it is Duncan because he's the clumpy, lumpy. <laughs> so my clumpy, lumpiness or whatever it is, I need to work on it. I need to walk with different kind of walk. And I notice that you walk so arrogant. Um, I don't know if that's arrogant, but it's just better than clumpy lumpy. Um, but the, the walk is distinctive. They've noticed my gait, and they said, I knew it was you, because that's what walks are like. It's part of where you're going and who you are. And so he uses this metaphor, this common metaphor, to describe this walking, not in the counsel of the ungodly. Counsel is advice. Counsel is directive. Counsel is worldview. Counsel is the distinct direction that you receive from these ungodly people who are telling you this is what you should do. It's contrary to what God says you should do, but it is in perfect accord with the wisdom of the world. Have you gotten advice like that? As an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't know God, who doesn't fear God, who doesn't want to submit their lives to the Scriptures, have they said to you, you know, here's what I think you should do. And you heard that advice and you went, man, that is the exact opposite of what I should do. They'll say things like, you know, you just got to follow your heart. You know, you just got to be you. You can't let other people tell you how to live or what to do. You're such a great person. Just, just... Just go with your instincts. It's that kind of advice that makes up the counsel, the advice, the worldview, the information that the ungodly want to download. And the person who walks with God doesn't walk without discerning what direction they're supposed to be going. And so the directive that the believer has isn't the advice or counsel of the ungodly, but the advice or counsel of the godly. They want to follow after God's ways. They want to get good advice, sound advice. And I'll tell you this right now. This is the most important aspect of your college years. Like who, the question that this asks is, who are you listening to? Like what voice is most prominent in your life? When it comes to the direction of your life, who do you think is telling you the truth? Can I ask you that? Can I ask you, who do you think is telling you the truth? Who is most influential to you? Who, is, who are you listening to? Like their voice fires up and they say it and you go, yeah, I'll do it. 
the most distinctive mark of, of really your life in these years is going to be what your influences are. Who do you think is right? Because if you're following after the counsel of the ungodly, that'll be the direction and the, the, the directive of your life. That's the information that you're getting to follow. That's the, the card you're reading from. That's the, the catalog you're ordering from. That's the recipe you're cooking from. It, whatever it is you're taking in, that's the advice, the counsel, and the direction that you're going to go. The godly man, the blessed man, doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. It's not that ungodly people can't tell you something that's true, can't give you some sound advice about buying a car, can't tell you, you know, something that makes sense or give you some hints and tips for better fitness or something like that. That's certainly in the realm of possibilities. It's that the ungodly could never help you in the right direction of your whole life the directives that you operate by. This is the engine of the believer. Second, nor stands in the path of the sinner. Still thinking about the engine. Uh, Nor stands in the path of the sinners. This isn't just a metaphor for not moving anymore. Standing in this psalm especially, because it brings up again in verse 5, standing is a word that has legal ramifications. You know how when you swear in in court, you remember if you went to Gorman, you, you... I'm kidding. I don't know why this joke keeps coming back, but uh, you stand in court, right? You stand and uh, you swear in or whatever. I mean, it's been a while since I was on probation, but um, you know, you, you put your hand up and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. You stand up. You, you make a solemn oath, a vow. That's what's being described here. This person stands in the path of sinners. He stands with them. Uh, he, he stands in solidarity. It's like to stand and be counted, to stand and testify, to stand with them. And so the blessed man, the righteous man, the Psalm 1 man is a person who doesn't stand with the same principles of the sinners. You see, the, to take your stand to stand and testify, to stand and be counted, to stand in solidarity with, is a life-defining posture. It's to say, these are my people. Who broke the window? All these naughty kids are sitting there, and you say, who broke the window? And a group of them all stand together in defiance and solidarity. And they said... I am Spartacus or whatever. (laughs) That's the kind of stand that's being depicted here. It's to be counted among the sinners. And you see, that's the path that they're on is a path that leads to a certain outcome. And there's only two outcomes described here. So the distinct directives are the counsel of the ungodly. The distinct principles are the path of the sinners. And then there's a distinct kind of settled conviction being described. And it certainly has a a ring of finality to it. It says, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This is an even greater association because in the ancient world, they would sit at the gates of the city and they were the judges, the rulers. They were in charge of it. And to sit with them meant to eat with them, to have company with them, to be counted among their members. So it is a standing with them and then it's a sitting with them. The whole thing, 
It really describes what it's like when you listen to those who do not listen to God. You'll be surrounded by ungodly counsel. You'll be walking uh, alongside of, of ungodly sinful people. You'll be sitting in a seat of scorners. Scorners or scoffers are those who are not just unrighteous, but openly mock the righteous, openly mock those who walk with God. And so the, the depiction here is someone who's, who's set apart, right? Someone who's different than their culture, who, who looks different and acts different and sounds different. And that's how the righteous start. Plumer, he's an old school guy, says the sum of this psalm is that the just and he alone is blessed. It's insights to the love of righteousness by presenting proper hopes, by pointing to the dreadful and the wicked. It warns us to flee from all iniquity, from all iniquity. You see, if you're a believer, you're going to be set apart from this world. That's just what it looks like. And the draw of the unbeliever and their counsel and lifestyle and entertainment and music and proclivities and preferences will draw you in, but the believer realizes, I have to be distinct. I have to be different. I can't walk the way they walk and stand with them and sit with them. This isn't a kind of bubble boy life where you don't have any relationships that are meaningful with unbelievers, but it is the kind of separation that is very clear that you're going a different direction than they're going. In Matthew 7, Jesus employs the same kind of language. It's that famous passage where he says, uh, on judgment day, those who did miracles in my name will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and this? And, and Jesus says to them, I never knew you depart from me. It's like the scariest words in the whole Bible. That same passage in Matthew 7 is surrounded by, by other Uh, sections that help explain what Jesus was doing there. And and one of them has to do with a a broad way and a narrow way. You remember that. Jesus says that that broad is the way of destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. Well, if you just keep going according to the way everyone else is going, you're just going to get pushed with the crowd. That's what this depiction is, is the righteous person is on a different path. He's going a different direction than the unbeliever's. And that's because the internal motivation of his heart, verse 2, is his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. That's the distinction. No longer depicted as what is negative, but what is positive. The reason that you stand differently, the reason you walk differently, the reason you associate differently is because you have a different disposition, a different delight under the engine of your life. What motivates and runs and draws and makes you go is this delight in the law of Yahweh. Now that word law, it's the Hebrew word Torah. We usually think of law as speed limits and rules and, you know, law. Law don't go around here, law dog. Law. That's not what Torah means. In fact, Torah, it'd be better to just call it Scripture. Because the Torah, technically speaking, is the first five books of Moses. the Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And that's not just law in there. Like, it's not just rules. There's some of that. 
There's narrative, there's stories of redemption, there's God's working among his people, there's exhortation. The whole book of Deuteronomy is, is encouragement and sermons. So law is more than that. Maybe you could translate it either scripture or teaching or instruction. Those would all be really good words. And that's what the believer delights in. That's the joy of our hearts. You see, Scripture, Holy Scripture, God's revelation of himself is not a snooze to us. It's something that when rightly understood and heard enlivens us and awakens us and gives us joy. It's where we take our signals from. It's where we take our understanding from. It's what opens our eyes to truth. And the contrastive word there, but his delight. You see, the comparison is sinners aren't what delights you. Worldly philosophy isn't what delights you. Those whose destiny is is hell and judgment, what delights them does not delight you because you delight in the law of Yahweh, the teaching and instruction of the one true God. And in his instruction, he meditates day and night. This is just a poetic way of describing his attention to the word of God. He meditates. It's a word that means to mutter, to speak aloud, to repeat. Uh, We don't get directions anymore because our phones tell us where to go and report our movements to the government. But we used to get directions. You know that? I remember one of my first trips to Southern California, I was trying to get from Fullerton to Grace Community Church. And I was like 19, 20 years old, something like that. And I borrowed, my aunt lives in Fullerton, and she let me borrow a a map called the Thomas Guide. It's like this big, fat, it was, I think Columbus was involved in the construction of the Thomas Guide. They were these spiral notebooks full of quadrant maps of all of Southern California. People kept these. SoCal people kept these in their cars. You, you heard of the Thomas Guide? Put your hand up if you see Thomas Guide. Oh, they came in here in a time machine, apparently. Uh, maybe your grandparents still have one in their car, which is incredible. If you ever find one and it doesn't have a home, I want one. I want to hold a Thomas guide. So I remember looking at these, at these grid maps and trying to find my way. And you could, there was a thing in the back, like an index, and you could, you could search it all up. And it was, this, it was this way where you could take this huge jumbled city of roads and find a way through by following Thomas guide. When you got lost, you have to go, you know, and stop someplace in Compton and say, hey, I'm lost, and my wallet is so heavy, I, I don't know where, where I am. And the person in the convenience store parking lot says, oh, dear brother, let me help you out. You need to go north on the 110, and then to the 405, and then you need to exit on Roscoe Boulevard. And when they say that to you, do you know what you do? We didn't used to have phones. We would go like this. Okay, north on the 110, and the 405. And you'd walk away from the directions going north and the 110 and the, and the Roscoe Boulevard. And you try to remember, right? And you kind of mutter those things out loud. That's what the psalmist is doing with his map. And his map is the Word of God. His directions, he's trying to internalize them and remember them and think them out and turn right here and left here. And God's Word is obviously far more delightful and illuminating than any map. 
But it's that same idea of meditation, of thinking out the implications, of giving careful attention to the Word, not out of duty, not out of some kind of sense of obligation, but apparently out of pure joy and delight that we find when we open the Bible and see God's made it clear how we should live. And then he paints this beautiful picture. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. What's this picture? Well, you can picture it. It's a tree. It's a tree by a stream of water because plants need water. That's why the hills here are brown and yellow and not green. But if there was a stream, you would find a strong tree there, a tree that's intentionally planted. Therefore, that tree is is stable and strong. It's not going anywhere. It's a tree. It's a productive tree. It has life in it. It brings forth fruit in season because it's planted by this life-giving water. And that tree has leaves on it, not leaves that are all musty and wrinkly and dry and dead, but leaves that are green and, and prosperous. So there's fruit on this tree. There's beautiful green foliage on this tree. And, and then the psalmist just drops the illustration altogether and says, whatever he does shall prosper. This picture of the tree that's stable, that's life absorbing, that's vital, that's fruitful, that's strong, that's durable, that's prosperous. That's what the believer looks like in contrast to those who go their own way. When you go God's way, you will be prosperous according to God's standards. Now, can you think of any exceptions to that? Has there ever been a believer who didn't prosper, like who ran out of cash, who made a mistake, who pooched it badly, or maybe a believer who, through no fault of his own, experienced pain and suffering? Somebody like Job? I mean, that happens, right? Well, the psalmist isn't concerned about all the exceptions that we can think of, and there are exceptions. He's thinking about the fundamental direction of their life being one of prosperity and blessing. And that's not the prosperity and blessing the guys on TV with the shiny teeth try to sell you. Like you come to Jesus and you'll be rich and famous and have no problems. That's not a biblical conception of prosperity. It's that you will be attached to God's life-giving source. You'll be attached to God's wisdom. You will be prosperous on a soul level. Your spirit will prosper and thrive. And even when you suffer, prosperity will be the outcome of your life. Not necessarily financially, not necessarily a a life that has minimal problems. You could have maximal problems. But underneath it all, you'll prosper. That's the explanation The engine is verse 1 and 2, verse 3 and 4, the explanation. And the explanation is that the believer is like a tree, a prosperous, stable, vital, durable, fruitful tree. Interesting in verse 4, the unbelievers only get one tiny line of description. The ungodly are not so. They are like shaft which the wind drives away. I think the closest thing in our experience to shaft unless you've done like 
grain work in the ancient world where you're in a pit and you're, you're working the grain up and all the light covery husk stuff takes in the breeze and the heavier grain falls down. That's what it was like to them. I, I doubt you've done that kind of work. I haven't. But I have eaten popcorn. And you know that little piece in the popcorn that's just, just you know, the little husky thing? Como se dice, kernel deal? You know, the, but the, the skin of it? It's yucky, and they get there right there in your teeth, and you're like, is there anything in your teeth? And, and people, is there anything in my teeth? And people go, hey, husk. That's what it is. It's not edible. You wouldn't, if I gave you a bowl of popcorn, that's delicious. If I gave you a bowl of husks, that's, that's bad. It's like bug skin. Bug skin. It's not edible. It's light. It's unpalatable. It doesn't last. It's trash. That's what he describes the ungodly as. They're like shaft that the wind drives away. There's nothing to them. They lack the stability and prosperity and fruitfulness of the tree. Instead, the course of their life following their own desires is one that will end very differently. And that's what this moves to now as it looks at the end. So what is the end of both? Verse 4, verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment. There's that word stand again. They won't be able to defend themselves. They'll collapse under God's judgment because they are required to live according to God's standards. We all are. He's our creator. We answer to him. That word judgment speaks of final judgment and there'll be no standing for them. They won't be able to defend themselves. They won't be able to explain themselves. You see, if you refuse to follow God, then you're on your own and you will not stand on the day of judgment. Not only will you not be able to stand, you'll have no one to stand with. Though you see that you're in the big, broad crowd right now, at the end, it says sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. So you'll have no standing and you'll have no society. You'll be alone before God's righteous judgment, deservedly so, and you will not be able to defend yourself. And then verse 6, For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What a strong ending that is. A depiction of God continually knowing. That's what that word means. God continually knows the way of the righteous. It's a reminder that though you may walk alone, as you stand up for what's right, God will be with you. He'll provide for you. He'll sustain you. He'll carry you to the end. But on the other hand, the other path, that broad road, the way of the ungodly shall perish. This psalm opens with the word blessed, and it closes with the word perished. Believer, there's only two ways to live. Watch who you walk with, where you stand, who your friends are. Meditate on the Word of God. Mindful that His way is the way to live. And the outcome of your life will either look like a tree or it will look like the husk of a seed cast away in the wind. When Jesus did His version of Psalm 1 in Matthew 7, He concluded it with these words, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. There's two ways to live. And Psalm 1 points at these paths and warns you and woos you to follow the path less taken, the narrow way, the more difficult way, the way that involves the blessing and attendance of God and not the scorn and judgment of God as you go along the path everyone else is going down. That's what it looks like for an individual. Psalm 2 tells us what it looks like in this whole world. And we'll look at that next week. Father, thank you for your word. You're good to show us yourself. That the orientation of our lives and the outworking of our lives and the ultimate outcome of our lives is so different because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. May we find our life in him. May we be rooted in your word and way, knowing that the only way to know you and to be forgiven by you and to have the righteousness that we need is to follow Jesus by faith. So open eyes even today and direct paths as each one here is thinking about their course of life. May we walk with Jesus, following him, building our lives on a foundation that will last through every storm and difficulty. We ask this with Jesus' help, by his grace and in his name. Amen.